Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. I'm Michael McKee, along with Francie Lacroix in London. Um, you have Tom Keene somewhere running around your city, yeah, um, pound but he's not on the air. Just to make sure he doesn't go bankrupt. He's okay for now. <laughs> well, we'll try to keep him satisfied. I mean, with prices the way they actually, I got an email from Tom's wife who said that she is trying to keep him from spending a lot of money. I guess with the pound where it is, <laughs> the temptation, the temptation is great, and even if it's cheaper, you've you've still spent the money. Uh, See, there is always a business story, right, to Tom's life. It, it's always if it's not pound volatility, it's something to do with treasury spreads and stuff like that. You, you know, you follow Tom and you look at uh, the economic GDP around the world. And women's shoes at Harrods, they were there yesterday. <laughs> you predicted that. And you were right. All right, joining us now uh, and wandering over from Bloomberg Television with me is John Sylvia. He is the chief economist at Wells Fargo in uh, Charlotte. He's up uh, visiting in Washington uh, from uh, visiting in New York from Charlotte. I don't know why I said Washington. We've been talking about Donald Trump so much today uh, that um, (laughs) that's on my mind. And I'm sure we'll get to him and Trumponomics. But I want to follow up on um, the ending of our conversation on Bloomberg Surveillance on television. And this is just a warning to all of you out there. If you didn't hear it, um, you'd need to get up earlier and turn Fran and I on this week. Um, (laughs) We were talking about uh, how the Fed has been at or near zero for seven years now. The rest of the world central banks have been at or below zero for many years now. And there's no inflation. It just, it's not being generated. And is it time to ask the question, uh, has the central banking model of how inflation is generated, and and the implication therefore obviously has to do with, with how people react in the markets, for them to jettison that and figure out something new? Well, certainly, let's say there are two major models. One, uh, you print a lot of money, you get a lot of inflation. Um, That uh, 1970s, early 1980s monetarist model um, doesn't seem to be playing out. Second, there's the Phillips curve model, in which uh, a lower unemployment rate will generate significantly higher wage pressures and therefore, you know, labor costs. Um, And that really didn't work for the last two or three years, and now... It's starting to work a little bit. So I think the challenge, Mike, is, okay, yeah, what, what is our model? And I, I got to believe that the, the market, particularly the bond market, is looking at this and saying um, globalization, trade, uh, competitive pressures, there's a lot of other factors going into this than the simple economics of a trade-off between unemployment and wage pressure. So what is that? Um, John, is there is there something? Is it I don't know if it's the psyche that people will actually go and spend because the market seem to be in a euphoria and they believe that Donald Trump will help them. Oh, I, I think clearly uh, for the 
holiday season here in the United States, there was a, a sense of euphoria and let's go spend some money. Holiday sales particularly were very, very strong, um, particularly um, you know, online uh, sales were particularly strong. So there was that euphoria that, that we're going to kick up our pace of economic growth. Now, growth can improve, and then the question, uh, you know, going back to, to Mike's point is, we're not getting the inflation associated with the kind of unemployment rate levels and economic growth that people are expecting. Uh, Tony Crescenzi from Primco was here yesterday, and he pointed out, and we were talking about it on the air, when, when you look at Dots Go, and you can call that up on your uh, Bloomberg terminal, and you can see the uh, not just the, the Fed's path for interest rates, but the option uh, the overnight index swaps, uh, basically the, the market's view of where interest rates are going. And they don't have nearly the enthusiasm for uh, what Donald Trump could do in terms of creating growth and inflation that equity markets do. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt the inflation part of it clearly is a very different ballgame going forward. Uh, once again, uh, the U.S. economy is not a closed economy like it was in the 1950s, 60s, and early 70s. So you're not getting that obvious Phillips curve kind of trade-off. Um, you've got a much broader mechanism for generating inflation over time. And uh, we're just not seeing that old model work. John, how do you believe the U.S. economy will change in the next 12 months? People are saying that maybe the economy will grow 3% by the end of next year. That would be a huge increase. Uh, well, 3% in the short run, uh, Francine, is certainly possible if you have tax cuts, if you have some infrastructure spending, perhaps more optimism in terms of trading relationships. But the challenge for, we, for us here in the private sector is, is that sustainable? And for us, what you really need is something with respect to productivity, something with respect to labor force growth, labor force participation rates. That's going to make that 3% more sustainable. I think, again, you know, when you look at the British experience, um, you know, the, the going for growth, yeah, that was easy in the short run for six months or a year. It generated an awful lot of inflation and uh, led to a lot of long-run problems in the British economy in the 60s and 70s. So are we in any danger of that, or has the dynamic changed so much that um, whatever happens, uh, the Fed and anybody who's worried about inflation has a lot of time to react? Well, for us, uh, the way I express it internally uh, is that we're, uh, we're, the market is on its second date with Donald Trump. First date looked wonderful. Everything, you know, is roses. Looks like we're going to do a lot of things. And now the second date is, okay, can you deliver? All right, what is the sustainable economic policy that's going to improve growth over time? First date's done. Second date, now we're more realistic in terms of what can actually happen. And, again, our conversation earlier today, uh, Mike, um, fiscal policy will be difficult because there will be some fiscal hawks. Infrastructure spending takes time. And trade is a very uncertain thing with respect to our relationships with respect to China and other countries. What can he actually do? If we take it methodically, so are you more worried that he won't be able to spend in infrastructure as much as he's said he would, um, but actually he has more of a chance of getting things through in terms of tax reform? Well, the example I use, Francine, of course, is Larry Summers' comments about the Lars Anderson Bridge uh, over the Charles River in Boston. Um, there's a lot of infrastructure that people say we need 
But now you've got to go through the permitting process. Now you're, you're dealing with the EPA putting things across water. Uh, now you're dealing with a lot of contracts. A lot of this is going to take a long time to put into place. And the same thing, I think, with respect to tax policy. Um, yes, I can cut the marginal tax rate on both businesses and personal uh, taxes, but how I'm going to pay for this or, again, what deductions am I going to get rid of? That creates a very, very different dynamic, Francine. Well, our guest is John Sylvia, the chief economist at Wells Fargo. And in our last segment, you sort of ended by saying, uh, since we don't know what Donald Trump is actually going to do and what Congress will pass, et cetera, uh, we don't know, you don't know what the economic forecast is going to be for 2017. So what if you're Janet Yellen? What is the <laughs> Fed going to do? Because they have to make policy, which works with long and variable lags, as the old trope has it, uh, based on forecasts. And yet, <laughs> how do you make a forecast? Well, we have not altered our economic forecast uh, in terms of the Fed uh, until we see what, in fact, is going to be done with respect to federal spending, defense spending, and tax cuts. And I think for Janet Yellen, I, I would say the same thing. If, if I were at the Fed, I'd say to wait and see. Let's see what gets done. Uh, let's not prejudge what's going to happen. And so I think the Fed will take a very, very cautious approach uh, to raising the federal funds rate and look at the data. John, what happens to dollar in 2017? More strength? And actually, how should Janet Yellen view that? Um, I, I would pick up on your earlier point, Francine, and emphasize that both the dollar is off a little bit and the price of oil is off a little bit. Um, I think there's going to be a reassessment with respect to what can actually get done in terms of economic policy and how much growth slash inflation is really being put into place. We still have a very cautious view on the dollar overall. Uh, we do think there's a little more dollar appreciation, but the dollar cuts two different ways. I mean, as you know, a stronger dollar does lower import prices and therefore help the Fed lower uh, inflation targeting. Uh, but the dollar strength also suggests that this year, 2017 coming, we're going to see another big trade deficit, which is a negative on economic growth. Um, so for us, the dollar cuts two ways. We do see some modest improvement in the dollar. But again, for me, um, we're on the second date. We're, we're waiting to see uh, what actually comes through. First date was wonderful. Second date, we need to figure out what's actually going to be put in place. Are you someone who worries? About the trade deficit? I mean, uh, this, is, uh, it, this was a big issue on the campaign trail, but a lot of economists say, you know, 2 to 3 percent of GDP is not a big deal. I would say at this point, Mike, we seem to be able to finance our trade deficit with capital inflows very nicely. Thank you very much. So I am not worried about the trade deficit per se. Um, as an economist, I understand that a lot of the trade deficit is really trade between a company bringing parts in or exporting products out. So it's a lot of companies trading within themselves, bringing imports and exports. And particularly when you look at um, capital goods in the United States and particularly automobiles. I mean, you know, what part of a car is not made in North America as opposed to just America? So, uh, no, I, I do not worry about the trade deficit per se at this level because simply it seems that we're able to finance it. And going back to Francine's point, we get a lot of capital inflows into the United States that help us finance that deficit. So it's, it's not a major concern for me. 
John, what happened? What is the question that you'd ask Donald Trump if he were to call in to Bloomberg surveillance right now in five minutes from now? What is the one thing that you need That's to learn two, from one, him two. <laughs> <laughs> to understand better how it impacts your world, the economy? Well, if it was a private conversation, I, I would really ask him, how did you want to structure fiscal policy in terms of are we talking tax cuts? Are we talking tax reform? Two different concepts. To what extent are you going to pursue those? And, and what are we willing to trade off in terms of getting a lower tax rate that you're willing to go to Congress and say, we're going to cut certain tax breaks? I, I think the structure of fiscal policy is the number one story for us. Well, fiscal policy itself is an issue. Janet Yellen suggested at her news conference on December 14th that perhaps it's not necessarily a good idea at this point. Well, uh, from Janet Yellen's point of view and from most economists, we are late in the cycle. All right, so now you're going to cut taxes, you're going to stimulate economic growth. To what extent are you simply increasing the demand side of the economy, more consumer spending, more housing, more business investment, and is that going to be met with additional supply? For Janet Yellen, looking at that labor market at full employment, it doesn't appear as if, Mike, there's a lot of capacity for an increase in supply. Well, do, in the do you think a lot of the people who are on the sidelines of the labor market will be pulled into the labor market? Well, I'll tell you, Mike, uh, you know, from my personal point of view, uh, no. Uh, the demographics are really driving that labor force participation rate and labor force growth. So when you say a lot of people coming in, no. You say some modest amount, yes. Uh, but once again, Mike, when we go back to manufacturing, we really need to upgrade the skills of a lot of people in the United States to be competitive with a more advanced manufacturing economy. John Sylvia, always great to see you. I hope we'll Thank see you me. a lot in 2017. Uh, up from Charlotte, from uh, Wells Fargo, where he is the chief economist. Joining us now is Neil Shearer. He's Capital Economics Chief Emerging Markets Economist. And it's perfect timing because uh, we are seeing an awful lot of uh, factors converging on emerging markets that will make 2017 very interesting, not the least of which, of course, is the election in the U.S. of Donald Trump and what it will mean geopolitically and what it means for the U.S. economy, therefore interest rates and the U.S. dollar, which are big contributors to what happens in emerging markets. The um, MXEF Emerging Markets Index up five points today, six-tenths of a percent. So it doesn't look like there's a lot of pessimism out there at the moment. Not at the moment, no. And I think that's probably justified at this stage for two reasons. The first is that um, obviously a lot of focus has been on what Trump is going to do around protectionism. Um, but I think in the short term, at least, it makes sense to move quite slowly in this in this area, politically and, and, and for economic reasons, too. Um, so far, at least, the types of interventions we've seen have been about trying to keep jobs in America um, and, and, and really, but, but, but small scale. Uh, we, we've not we, we've seen some rowing back from the blanket 35% tariffs on Chinese goods, 25% tariffs on Mexican goods. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that although the so-called Trumpflation trade, uh, looser fiscal policy nece necessitating tighter monetary policy in the US um, has obviously pushed the dollar higher and raised interest rate expectations in the US, the sensitivity and vulnerability of, uh, uh, to, to that of, of emerging markets, I think, has diminished 
over the past couple of years. You've seen these big current account deficits that had, that had opened up in places like Brazil and India and Indonesia. They've started to narrow. Uh, so really, it's only a handful uh, of, of EMs that are very vulnerable to higher US rates and a stronger dollar. I'd probably put Turkey at the top of that uh, of that list. Really, the, the, the big risks for emerging markets are domestic in nature in 2017, I think. Right, and you're thinking of that, and you painted an, a nice global picture of a lot of these emerging markets, which are the ones that have not pushed in the structural reforms needed to be stronger in the next 18 months. Wow, that, that's a good question. I think it's probably easy to say which are the ones that have, uh, because really we've seen since 2010, really, um, that the reform momentum in emerging economies has, has slowed and actually grown to a halt. I think a lot of that has, has its roots in the 2008 global financial crisis when obviously emerging markets um, were relatively resilient. I think that really engendered complacency in policymaking circles in emerging markets. Since then, we've seen almost no structural reform in, in, in any major emerging market, with perhaps two exceptions. The first is Mexico, uh, where we saw quite an impressive reform package in uh, 2012 under President Peña Nieto. Obviously, now um, the thoughts have turned to Trump. Uh, the Mexican government itself, Peña Nieto, is the most unpopular president on record. Elections there in 2018. Uh, perhaps that's the next place to watch for populism. Uh, the second place is Argentina, um, where we had a market-friendly government elected in, in, in late 20, uh, 2015. Um, big fiscal reforms announced, uh, the liberalisation of the capital account, liberalisation of the currency, um, all necessary steps, but the consequence has been a deep recession uh, and growing disenchantment with the government there. So really, there's not very many good news stories on the, on the domestic reform front in, in emerging economies these days. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Mexico, because it is, um, along with China, target number one for Trump, at least on the campaign trail. Uh, the Mexpol index finishing up by about 6% for the year, not too bad. Uh, the uh, the uh, Mexican peso took a hit, um, now trading at 20.68 uh, today. Um, how vulnerable is the Mexican economy to what happens here? Hugely. Uh, I mean, th th there's, there's, it's very difficult to underplay this. About 25% of Mexico's GDP is exports to the U.S. So it really matters um, what, what happens to trade policy. If you look, uh, you, you can plot quite, plot quite a nice chart of Mexican industrial production against U.S. industrial production. Since NAFTA, the two have moved in lockstep. And that just goes to show just how integrated the Mexican economy and U.S. economies have, have become. So it really does matter. It's difficult to understate that, I think. Um, the question, to my mind at least, is to what extent is there going to be pushback from corporate America to, to any trade protection measure, measures um, announced or, or considered by the Trump administration? I think that is the key point of resistance because supply chains across the border have become so deeply enmeshed that um, I think any serious attempts to restrict trade uh, with Mexico... But nothing Mexico can do on its own. Very little. China's a different case, actually, in this. I think China has quite substantial power in this regard, um, it, it, just by virtue of its sheer size, uh, to push back. Mexico, different kettle of fish altogether, uh, and not much it can do to, to push back. But, sorry, Neil, what, what can actually corporate America do? 
even if they decide, like, this is wrong, let's say there are trades or tariffs imposed on the supply chain of American companies doing business in China, right? It's the president, right? He does what he wants. How do you how do you fight back? Well, you say that. I mean, yes, that that is true. Um, but there's there's things they can do through lobbying and the lobbying Congress. Of course, Congress under the Constitution uh, has control over uh, the regulation of commercial affairs with foreign uh, with foreign countries. Actually, there's quite a lot the president can do unilaterally without having to go through Congress to make affairs more restrictive. Uh, Liberalising trade policies um, is more difficult. That has to go through Congress, but there's quite a lot with it within the current confines and the setup that, that, that President Trump could do without going through Congress. So it's really a lobbying effort, I think. Uh, and I wouldn't underestimate that. Um, I wouldn't underestimate the lobbying ability of corporate America. Um, my sense is that a middle ground, at least in the first couple of years, is going to be found whereby President Trump can stand up and say, I've saved 5,000 jobs at Sprint. I've saved 800 jobs at Carrier. That gives him a platform to say, look, I'm keeping uh, to my election promises. But actually, it doesn't really change very much on the ground. To my mind, the big risk comes to the second half of the year, uh, the second half of the presidential term. By that point, the U.S. Uh, recovery is looking quite long in the tooth already. We've had a bit of fiscal stimulus. Perhaps that's starting to fade. The effects of higher U.S. interest rates are starting to come in uh, and bite. The U.S. economy is slowing. Thoughts are turning to re-election. We know that when President Trump's back or President-elect Trump's back is against the wall, uh, the first person that gets blamed or the first people uh, that get blamed are, are perhaps foreigners and foreign entities. And that's when I think the real threat of protectionism starts to, 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 to bite. Uh, the um, plans he is talking about in terms of trade, uh, are you marking down growth figures for any uh, emerging market countries directly because of that? It's very difficult, I think, at this stage, simply because there's so we we simply don't know what the the the, the policies are going to look like at this stage, both on the domestic fiscal front and then the trade front and the two are interrelated by the way because if you get a big fiscal expansion in the US but no trade restriction then some of that demand is going to leak out to more benefit emerging economies at this stage we've nudged down some of our forecasts for Mexico mainly because of the uncertainty generated uh, by the Trump victory rather than the direct effect of trade restrictions th themselves but we're not slashing our forecasts at this stage uh, I know others have others are forecasting recessions in Mexico next year I don't think that is the big threat like I say my my focus would be on 2018 to 2020 I think that's when the the, the real risks come even for China even for China I think for China itself the the, the, the key risks at this stage and this is true of all the BRICS by the way but 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 particularly is China the key risks are domestic uh, it's what's how does this huge credit boom play out? Uh, the policy stimulus that we saw uh, the second half of 2015, the first half of 2016, that's played an important role in stabilizing the economy. We have our own capital economics activity proxy for China. That's suggesting that the economy is now growing at its fastest pace since 2013. So all those fears of hard landing 12 months ago have dissipated uh, and, and proved ill-founded. The flip side of that, of course, has been that the policy stimulus is simply added to debt levels. Um, and this, this looks unsustainable to us. So how does that play out? Uh, that is the, that, that's the key issue for China over the next couple of years, I think, rather than, than Trump and trade. Well, we are talking with Neil Shearing. He's the chief emerging markets economist for Capital Economics. He's based here in New York. Uh, if it weren't for Donald Trump, 
we'd still be talking to you about what's going to happen in capital markets, uh, in emerging markets, but we would be asking it in a different way. So let me do some of that and ask you what some of the other issues for markets are, particularly when you talk emerging markets, you're talking a lot of commodity uh, economies, and commodities are starting to rise again. That's right. I think I think there's probably three themes distinct from Trump that we need to think about. Commodities is one. Uh, domestic political risks, uh, indeed geopolitical risks in emerging economies, is, is, have been on the rise, and I think it's partly misunderstood. That's another. And then debt levels in emerging economies is, is another thing we need to, to think about. When it comes to commodities itself, um, I think the big story here is that the time to worry was in 2012, 2013. Uh, we had oil above 100. Uh, we had iron ore, copper prices uh, close to records. Uh, that was the time to worry. That was really on the back of uh, unsustainably rapid growth in China and also unbalanced growth in China that was fueling uh, very, very heavily skewed towards investment and in heavy industry that was fueling demand for, for, uh, for, for commodities. That was the time, to my mind, to, to worry about commodities, uh, commodity currencies, and, and emerging market commodity uh, economies. Um, I think a lot of that has now washed out. We, we've obviously commodities have bounced off the bottom that we saw at the first half of, uh, of this year. Um, we're not going to go back to the levels that we saw in 2013 in terms of prices, I don't think. Um, but I think there's probably room for, for, for commodity prices to edge a bit higher. That probably means that things like you know, currencies like the Brazilian real, the Indonesian rupiah, uh, the Malaysian ringgit, they may edge a bit higher this year, even the Russian ruble. Um, but of course, that's bound up with with Trump as well. So there's so many kind of interconnecting themes at the moment uh, that, that, that we need to work through. And Neil, let's talk about then geopolitics. We'll get back to commodities, but you say, look, if they're ticking up nicely, as the trend is higher, let's not worry too much about that. What do you mean by geopolitics? You mentioned Turkey as, as I, I believe, one of probably the places where you'd be most cautious about. Is this because it's, it's becoming more and more like an autocratic government? And as Erdogan actually reinforces power, he's totally in charge, right? Is it like a dictatorship? And actually, does that not mean stability for investors? Well, uh, one person's um, stability is another person's um, unpredictability. I think it depends which side of the which side of the fence you sit on, and whether and, and whether you fall foul of of, of the government. Um, I would actually say that there's a broader point to make here, which is that a lot of the political risk in emerging markets has been bracketed um, under the banner of riding quote unquote rising quote unquote populism and i think it's a bit more nuanced than that i think there are probably at least three different strands that you can identify one is i think economic nationalism and that is the banner under which i would put turkey a lot of this is about somehow restoring um, former former glories in economies or somehow facing down uh, perceived uh, foreign threats. And that, uh, that is the, 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 the um, banner under which um, President Erdogan has, has um, seen this authoritative um, crackdown in, 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 in Turkey. The big risk for, for economies in that sense, I think, is that it creates a huge amount of uncertainty for the, for the business environment, for investment. The second is broader disenchantment with political classes. That's mainly an issue in Latin America these days, actually, particularly Brazil. But I think uh, keep an eye on Mexico. There's elections there next year, 20, sorry, next year 2018. Uh, also South Africa as well. That, that, that could be something that comes onto the, to the agenda. And then there's the broader geopolitical um, issues. Uh, two, bigger relations, two big relations here, US and China, US and Russia. Uh, watch for how that develops um, over the course of this year, because um, I think that is going to be that the, the, these are perhaps low probability but high 
high impact events if they start to spiral out of control. Well, those again get back to uh, the president elect, but uh, some of the other political risk economies are among the bigger emerging market economies out there. You mentioned Brazil, Argentina, uh, South Africa. How do those play out? Are, 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 is each one independent of the other, or is there some sort of broader trend uh, of political concern? Well, I think they're, they're independent in the sense that the specific conditions in each of those economies are very new, uh, unique to, to the, the particular countries in, in question. So I wouldn't necessarily try to say that just because X happens in Brazil, it means Y is going to happen in South Africa. But I do think there's a, there is a narrative that binds, but binds these themes together. And that is that economic growth in these economies has slowed. Uh, as economic growth has slowed, so incomes have slowed, that means there's less of the pie to share around. That means the governments have less uh, income to essentially you know, buy off discontent. Um, and I think at the same time, expectations across the emerging world on behalf of consumers have increased over the past decade. They, they've kind of bank or they're, they're banking increasing uh, gains in income uh, and moves up the, the, the income ladder, if you like. Um, so I think that is the, 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 the kind of um, underlying narrative, the binding narrative is economic growth is slowing, incomes are slowing, and that creates political problems for, for governments. They manifest themselves in different ways across different countries, but I think it's something that's here to stay. And what it means for investors is we've got to get used to more political uncertainty and political shocks that affect uh, financial markets and emerging economies. What is, what is the one thing, you know, that you think is, is being mispriced in emerging markets? And we talked a little bit about commodities. We talked a little bit about foreign policy. But um, with big events that people unforesee, those are the shocks, right? It's the financial crisis. It's the black swan events. Is there something that you see on the horizon that's not priced in? A, a lot of good news is priced in. But I would say in certain cases, a lot more bad news is priced in as well. Yeah, well, what a good question. I mean, if I knew the answer to that, then I'd be a lot of, a, a richer man, wouldn't I? But um, <laughs> call us first when you get that answer. Yeah, exactly. Um, look, I think a, a lot of the risks are, that are kind of on people's radar screens at the moment, um, I think, are priced into the market now. So that we've got, we've talked a bit about political risk. I think that's largely known about now. Geopolitical events, Trump. Uh, I think is well discussed and, and markets are well versed in. Um, my sense is that the, the bigger risks um, in emerging economies that aren't necessarily on people's radar screens are a bit more structured in nature. Um, over the past 10 years, 15 years, we've got used to the idea of catch-up in emerging economies, this idea that emerging economies just grow faster than developed economies. They're the engine of global growth. Uh, and actually, I don't think if you, if you look back beyond 2000, uh, that's not the case. Uh, in the 1990s, it didn't happen. In the 1980s, it didn't happen. In the 1970s, it didn't happen. Um, so catch-up really was an, an anomaly that was uh, unique to the 2000s, and it was a factor of various things that were happening at the time, but the, the, the common theme was, and the common thread was reform in, in emerging economies. I think that's over. Uh, as we've just spoken about, reform has really grown to a halt across emerging economies. So what markets need to, to the, the risk that markets uh, need that aren't really pricing in, I don't think, is uh, is that economic growth in, in emerging economies is structurally now much, much lower. That creates huge problems because income growth is going to be much lower. So things like debt burdens become a bit more unsustainable. Uh, there's big implications for equity market returns, of course, as well. Um, so that's the thing that I would keep my, my eye on. Can't let you go, and I just have a minute left here, but uh, without asking uh, about one of the biggest of all emerging markets, and that's India. Uh, Prime Minister Modi has been around for now some time. He's got his 
policies in place. What happens in 2017? Depends whether your glass is half full or half empty. The half full is that actually some important reforms um, have been announced, particularly to tax and labour. Um, the, the half empty is this demonetization that was essentially botched. The RBI governorship direction of policy is much much less certain uh, there now. My sense is that actually the economy probably improves a bit over the course of next year, um, demonetization notwithstanding. The second half of next year, we might get a bit of a, of a recovery. Uh, but really, uh, huge potential in, in India, huge economic potential. I think that mainly goes un, unfulfilled. Good news is uh, Francie needs a smaller purse now. She doesn't have to carry around as many big bills. <laughs> exactly. That's the very good news. <laughs> Neil Shearing, Capital Economics, Chief Emerging Market Economist. And Tom Keen's wallet gets smaller, too. Uh, thanks for being with us here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Well... One of the toughest things to do in uh, the economics business is to make projections about what's going to happen to the economy. And it becomes even tougher when you've got a new administration coming in, and even tougher still when you've got a new administration coming in with all kinds of different policies and nobody knows what's going to get adopted. So what do you do? Uh, let's ask uh, John Riding. He's uh, head of RDQ Economics. Um, are you able We've talked to several economists today who say they, they just throw up their hands. Are you able to make any kind of forecast for what 2017 is going to be like? Well, I think that the first thing to hang our hat on is that the economy is entering 2017 at pretty close to full employment. So that's a point in the economy where how the economy behaves from the supply side, that is labor force growth and productivity, begin to take over from what's going to happen on the demand side. So we've got some long-established trends now going back five or six years of very sluggish productivity growth, 1% per year or less. And we know the demographics and the room to run in terms of a pickup in labor force participation um, evaporated uh, towards the end of this year. So we're looking at labor force growth of half a percent or so. So to start off with, we, we have an environment of relatively slow growth. Now... We don't know the exact policies, but we all expect, I believe, some kind of fiscal stimulus, infrastructure spending, and lower tax rates. And so we're going to get fiscal stimulus at a time of relatively full employment. So the question from the economist's perspective is, this is very different from the environment that we've been in. We're sort of going back to a more, potentially more 1970s environment, unless we get that pickup in productivity growth. And that's, to me, that's the $64 million question I look at over the next four years is, are we going to stick with a relatively sluggish 1% or so productivity growth? Or can we get back to the 2% average growth that the economy's had over the last 100 years, or even something higher? And I, I think the pessimistic take on it is productivity trends are slow to turn. The optimistic take is, 
that we have the potential here to remove the biggest obstacle to investment in the U.S., which is the high corporate tax rate in the U.S. relative to the rest of the developed world. When the U.S. is at 35% plus state and local taxes, and the U.K. is at 17%, and Ireland's lower, the case for investing in the U.S. for a multinational company is a difficult one to make. But, John, I don't even know how you start addressing productivity rates, because a lot of people are saying that it may be the way we measure it or the fact that actually all of this technological advancement that they're seeing or deflationary pressures in terms of productivity because of Uber and the sharing economy is is just the way we have to live now. So if you're President Trump, how do you address it? Well, in the end, presidents and governments can only set a framework. Productivity growth is largely established uh, by uh, at the company level and by individual company decisions. So what I'm saying here, Francine, is the first thing to do is let's take away the biggest obstacle to undertake an investment in the U.S. Because here's a little factoid about the U.S. economy. Between 1950 and 2009, capital per worker, the capital labor ratio, rose on average 3% per year. We gave on average U.S. workers 3% more stuff, computers, desks, cars, whatever to work with, than they had in the previous year. And since 2009, it's been flat. In fact, it's declined slightly. And about half our productivity growth comes from making the economy what economists call more capital intensive. So let's at least start by taking away the disincentive to put more capital to work in the U.S. versus putting it to work uh, in uh, other economies. Is there a policy that would do that uh, absent uh, – I mean, even if you lower uh, taxes um, – corporate taxes, are they going to put that money towards that kind of investment? Well, I think that's where, and we were talking a little off air, the difference between lower tax rates and tax reform. The problem is that the U.S. tax system creates a lot of incentives for gains in capital structure, which means if you're looking to add earnings per share, you might, and post-tax, after-tax earnings per share, you might put more effort into rearranging your capital structure, doing inversion deals. And most inversion deals have been done in the last uh, few years, have been done to take advantage of lower tax rates uh, overseas, so make it look as if you're an overseas company, or by changing the leverage of your balance sheet, taking on more debt uh, for share buybacks. So what we need is to take away the ability to add value to one segment of the capital structure by playing these capital structure games and have companies focus on growing and adding value through growth. And wouldn't that John, be a radical idea? It would be a radical idea, but actually it just comes if people are confident, right? This is also why even if you you know leave the share buybacks to one side, CEOs are sitting on cash because they don't see anything good coming out of either their company or earnings growth or you know the world in the next one to two years. How do you change that? Well, Francine, you, you, you were so confident in a, the... Uh, great British macroeconomist from the last century, John Maynard Keynes, called it animal spirits. So that's a very good question. How do you revive animal spirits so people want to jump in and take that chance? And I think that's 
a very difficult question to answer. I think you can begin to address it by changing the environment. And, uh, you know, instead of <coughs> vilifying CEOs, uh, maybe try and make the atmosphere more pro-growth, pro-business in Washington. So John, we were talking a little bit before about animal spirits and about the fact that if Donald Trump is to succeed in reflating the U.S. economy, it also has to go with uh, giving the power to CEOs to feel a little bit more confident about the future so they can start spending and investing instead of only focusing on their shareholders. How difficult is that? We see it in Japan with Governor Kuroda trying to also focus on inflation through animal spirits. Does it take too long? Do we, do we have enough time in the economy for that to happen? Well, obviously this is very speculative area. Um, I, I think part of the problem, when you say take too long, is if you're running a company and you're making a decision about an investment that might be in place for many years, um, you actually really want someone to be focusing on that longer-term perspective. The problem is you could put policies in place now, and those policies could be reversed uh, in four years' time or in eight years' time after uh, another election. So that, that's, the, that's the first challenge. How do we get something that looks like permanency in, in the environment? Because what do business people want? They want a predictable environment, and they want um, – a, an environment in which there aren't impediments to doing economic activity. So, again, I come back to what can the administration do? Uh, tax reform, tax rate reduction, uh, simplifying and reducing regulations, because I do think the burden of business regulations has become um, uh, very, very high. Uh, and... Uh, but there are other uncertainties. Antitrust policy. What would be the attitude towards mergers? Again, companies have focused on, in many ways, on the merger, purchasing growth, than on um, growing endogenously. And I, I think a lot of that comes to do with distortions. It becomes the easy play, the one you can show in a pitch book where it's harder to show what the returns to some investment might be uh, over a 10-year period. But what does the threat, for example, of global you know, trade wars? So I'm thinking of something with China, but it could be with the, you know, smaller emerging markets such as Mexico. If you're a CEO, a CEO sitting on cash, how do you view that? Because instead of looking at jobless claims and inflation, you're a CEO and suddenly you have to also become a foreign policy expert? Well, uh, again, a, a great question and a, a difficult one to answer because if you look at the economic impact of imposing a tariff, that is to say a tax on imports, and you say that's going to be, be my policy, then you have to think what is the potential response elsewhere. Now, there is a a body of global agreements and law uh, under the World Trade Organization, which the U.S. is a part of, which to some degree um, constrains U.S. behavior. Uh, and it might sound great to, to tear up the rule book, but I think uh, you know, tearing up the rule book is, uh, um, is fairly hard, and that would be very negative for the business climate because companies are – the U.S. companies are global companies, and – you know, many transactions would within the company, organizing the company, would be um, would be affected by that. On the other hand, uh, one idea which we may see get traction, which might be portrayed by some 
as a tariff is this idea of a border uh, adjustment tax, which, as I say, in Europe, for example, you levy VAT on domestically sold goods, but goods that are sold abroad, there's no VAT levy because the assumption is the country in which those goods are to be sold would have a VAT and it would be taxed there. And to the extent the U.S. doesn't have a VAT... um, it, it, it does create a tax incentive towards exports versus uh, domestic sales. So I can see that being a, an area that might uh, get away under those WTO uh, laws uh, and might be one that, if sold correctly, wouldn't result in a reaction. That's why, but it, it, it's, a, it's a great question. Uh, and attitudes towards China and towards currency and towards trade are, are all part of that business environment. But overall, I do think we're going to be in a more business-friendly, mm-hmm. business-positive climate and maybe one in which we will see more investment activity. But, um, you know, that, that's a great thing about forecasting. Even hindsight's 50 Unpredictable. And 2017, probably unpredictable than most years. Talk to me about uh, the labor market in the U.S. Is, are you concerned that we may see a labor market that's deteriorating? I mean, 2016 is obviously the year that has seen steady but also historically low level of jobless claims. Does that continue or does it reverse? Well, I think how I you characterize the labor market is we're pretty close to, if not at full employment with a 4.6% unemployment rate. And I think the stories about hidden unemployment have been greatly overplayed. I don't think there's that much hidden unemployment. There hasn't been a recovery in labor force participation. And demographics, the aging of America means the population of working age is growing only about half a percent per year. So you know, we're used to that first Friday of the month, the jobless claims come out, and we have in our mind 200,000 as a, as a number that's a, a good number and one that would lower the unemployment rate, and a number more like 125,000 would keep the unemployment rate steady. We're going to move into an environment where 100,000 is going to be a strong jobs report. And fifty to 75,000 will be all that's needed to keep the unemployment rate steady. So if you're in an environment where labor is hard to find, you are more inclined to hold on to the labor that you've got. And there's an awful lot, very high levels of job openings uh, that haven't been filled. Now, having said that in terms of bodies, there's a but lot of... are they of quality it, jobs? But, for, if, if you're unemployed, uh, one might say that a, any job is a... Uh, um, you know, is something of a quality job and better than the circumstance that you're in. We are seeing rising wages, but the quality jobs that are open and the current labor force, there may be a skills mismatch. And that is something that there are no, I, I don't see policies to address issues of skills mismatch, uh, issues of education. I think uh, those are um, Uh, Very important things. And then, of course, there is the challenge down the road. If technologies like the driverless car um, really kick in, um, you know, they could transform some industries in the same way, for example, that online retailing is beginning to kick in and affect retail. So I still expect to see over the next few years a lot of churn in the labor market and you know, quality jobs need a quality labor force. And I would really like to see some thought given uh, to that uh, over the next few years. All right, John, thank you so much for all of the insight. John writing there, RDQ Economics.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.